Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. In addition to being a longtime friend of AJC, Andy Zemanidis is the Chicago-based executive director of the Hellenic American Leadership Council. Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, great to be here. I think the first thing that many American Jews think about when they hear about Greeks and Jews is probably Pi or some other Jewish fraternity, <laughs> or, or worse, maybe maybe the Hanukkah story or something yeah. like that. But actually, there are strong ties between the Hellenic American community and the American Jewish community, ties that you've been instrumental in strengthening. What's the background there? Well, you know, prior to me, too, I mean, I, I'm i very proud of our partnership with AJC and what we've done, uh, but we do stand on the, the shoulders of giants. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's, it's easy to forget where we came from, but it wasn't too long ago, it was certainly in, in my lifetime, that Greece and Israel were not that close. And in the 1980s, they didn't enjoy full diplomatic relations. And so, you know, your Chicago crowd will love this. Maybe the rest of you won't. But the whole Greek-Jewish relationship, and even at the state level, has ties in Chicago because AJC's then-president, Maynard Wishner, and the lay leader who we affectionately called the patriarch of the Greek community, Andrew Athens, uh, endeavored, decided together that they were going to get Israel and Greece to upgrade to full diplomatic relations. Now, tying it to today, the then-prime minister who is the father of the recently elected prime minister. So uh, Kyriakos Mitsotakis, his father, Konstantin Mitsotakis, was elected prime minister. And uh, and AJC, with their partners in the Greek-American community, undertook to get this full diplomatic uh, upgrade done, and it it got done. So I, I would say that's like kind of the origin story. Mm-hmm. So um, just this week, actually, we saw um, some of the fruits of that burgeoning relationship. The inaugural uh, East Mediterranean Energy Summit kicked off in Greece. Um, the senior leaders from Greece and Cyprus, from Israel, the U.S., from other countries met to discuss um, significant energy cooperation. Mm-hmm. Um, why are these kinds of U.S.-backed partnerships in the region significant? Well, because the East Med, you know, I I tell people that's where civilization as we know it started. You know, another Greek-Jewish tie, Winston Churchill's famous quote that no two cities uh, counted for humanity the way Jerusalem and and Athens Hmm. did. Uh, And and the U.S., you know, for Americans, let's remember, we have a, a Navy today and a Marine Corps, right, because of piracy in the Mediterranean, right? When uh, the Marine Corps theme goes from the halls of Montezuma yeah. to the shores yeah. of Tripoli, and they meant Tripoli, Libya, not Tripoli, the landlocked city in Greece. But, uh, <laughs> you know, we face some of the greatest threats, right? You know, the Arab uprisings that turn into an Islamic winter, uh, Syria, uh, Hamas and Hezbollah have presence, and Islamic State have presences on the Mediterranean. Libya is still a mess. Turkey has become a revanchist uh, state. The one piece of good news in the last 10 years is the spirit of cooperation that really started with Israel, Greece, and Cyprus, 
and now has expanded. And it, it wasn't the inaugural this week. Actually, the inaugural was in February in Cairo, the East Med Gas Forum. But it's something that uh, AJC and HALC have been working on from the establishment of the Congressional Hellenic Israel Alliance Caucus, where we said we got to help create a regional infrastructure that just like the European Union started uh, because of an energy source, steel and coal, that natural gas and renewables, by the way, can play a similar role. And when you sit there and see Egypt and Greece and Cyprus and Israel and Jordan and Italy and the Palestinians all sitting down working on joint communiques. Now you have the French ambassador saying, we want to be part of this. Hmm. Uh, we're on the front lines of history here. It's really an amazing thing to think about. You know, the sky's the limit with a project like that, right? Yeah. The Mediterranean, right, by definition, right, the, the word in Greek means the middle sea or middle of the earth, right? It's been the great connector. And at a time where... People argue that nationalism or tribalism is the most important uh, or the most powerful force in the world. To have people connected, to have the EU connected with the Levant, to have uh, Eastern Orthodoxy and Western Orthodoxy tied directly and working cooperatively with with Judaism and, and Islam, uh, and to be connected especially because of law of the sea issues, these are borders, right? And you look at the Mediterranean and you know that it's Israel's only friendly border, truly friendly border is its border, its, its exclusive economic zone with uh, touching the exclusive economic zone of Cyprus. And this is not a theoretical issue. You know, people may forget this, but when Morsi came to power, the first thing he said he was going to do is cut off hmm. energy uh, to Israel. And... Immediately, Israel, Greece, and Cyprus uh, came to a deal to lay the world's longest submerged power cable, the Euro-Asia interconnector, which took another step forward again the last couple of weeks. Um, and this is one that, one, will make sure Israel is never cut off from electricity because it's going to connect Israel directly to Europe's electricity grid. But it's also a two-way. If Israel produces excess electricity, it could help power Europe which then makes Europe more energy independent from countries like Russia, right? So what's going on here is going to change uh, geopolitics. A moment ago, Andy, you mentioned the uh, Congressional Hellenic Israel Alliance, or, or CHIA, which your organization and, and mine helped to get off the ground. CHIA, um, and specifically, I think, Congressman Ted Deutsch, who uh, longtime listeners of AJC Passport will remember as an engaging guest, CHIA is urging the passage of legislation in Congress to provide formal U.S. support for the burgeoning alliance between, or, or among rather, Israel, Cyprus, and Greece. Um, I'll just add that if people are interested in learning more or supporting that, they can head to ajc.org slash easternmed to write to their representatives and ask them to sign on. Um, while people are, are navigating over to that link, Andy, I understand why the relationship is important for Israel. And I understand why it's important for Greece and Cyprus. And by extension, I understand why it's important for me and why it's important for you, Andy. But why is it important for America? Because the U.S., you know, what we've learned, and especially with the forever wars, the U.S. can't mm. be everywhere. Mm. And yeah, the U.S. does not have an endless supply of, of blood and treasure. And at the same time, the U.S. can't withdraw from the world. We see every place the U.S. withdraws from becomes 
more dangerous. So the U.S. needs reliable allies, reliable strategic partners. Uh, unfortunately, in this region, uh, in this region for a long time, there was in, in the region being the Eastern Mediterranean, there was kind of a dual pillar that the U.S. could rely on Israel and the U.S. could rely on Turkey. Well, Turkey has proven to be not reliable, and in fact, doesn't even work with the other pillar, Israel, well anymore. So if we are going to have an arc of stability in what has become a sea of instability, uh, basing a, a new U.S. or a reconceived U.S. strategy on the three democracies in the region, and this isn't only value. This is one of those rare moments where your values and your interests can work quite well. Greece hosts the southernmost NATO base, Suda Bay, right, which is a hard asset that is incredibly important, and it happens to be the only military base that's equidistant from the Eastern Front against the Islamic State and the Western Front, and it's directly across from the Sinai Desert where hmm. we know where. Cyprus hosts, 3% of Cyprus as a result of the decolonization uh, has remained sovereign British bases. So they are a very important military installations in Cyprus. The French and the Germans conduct operations against the Islamic State or against Assad from Cyprus. Um, and you look at it, it's like a permanent aircraft carrier in the middle of the sea. So besides the value reasons, there are hard reasons, intelligence share, Sharing, um, maritime Cyprus and Greece, two of the most prominent merchant marines, not only in the region but in the world, are part of anti-piracy and anti-proliferation initiatives, which allow us to make sure weapons to terrorists, weapons of mass destruction, uh, are not they're not being transported by seas. And then finally, they're very important because. If we're going to do stuff from whether it's designating Hezbollah as a terrorist group, enforcing sanctions against rogue states and terrorist states, we need people who are going to lead the charge in Brussels. And, and Greece and Cyprus have been doing that. Um, a few weeks ago, you traveled to Greece with AJC CEO David Harris. While there, David met with the newly elected Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis, um, who you mentioned before. I, I say newly elected, but I'm not sure that quite does it justice. I, yeah. I think it was within the first 24 hours um, yeah. after Prime Minister Mitsotakis assumed office that he and David um, met. Back in 2018, when you were with us in Jerusalem at the AJC Global Forum, Prime Minister Mitsotakis, who then was the leader of the New Democracy Party, but not yet Prime Minister, um, addressed our global forum, and he promised to strengthen his country's already robust ties with Israel. Fast forward now to just this weekend, the Greek foreign minister, mm -hmm. who's only been in office, I guess, for about two, yeah. three weeks, was in Israel, uh, and he met with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, um, Foreign Minister Israel Katz, President Reuven Rivlin. Um, do you expect Prime Minister Mitsotakis to keep this promise? Do you see him as someone who's who's really going to strengthen these ties with Israel in a serious way? Absolutely. Uh, first of all, there are strong historic ties, uh, even from the Mitsotakis family. Like I said, it was his mm -hmm. father that upgraded uh, to full diplomatic relations. Uh, Prime Minister Mitsotakis, people forget that he was in the previous 
the new democracy government. He was a minister with then Prime Minister Samaras, another very strong friend of Israel's and of the AJC's. And the upgrade that we're seeing right now that we're enjoying is rooted in, in that government too. Uh, so he has the policy background. He has a personal tie. And right before he came to Global Forum, actually, just days before, he was the first meeting from Athens to Jerusalem uh, delegation that AJC Access and Halx Leadership 2030 came. So there's a constant line of communication. Several of his ministers, uh, Foreign Minister Dendias, served as defense minister in the Samaras government. Um, minister of Health Kikilias uh, is a longtime friend of AJC, has spoken at joint Halk AJC events, has spoken at the Chia uh, conference. Uh, there are a host of officials in this government who have been pro-Israel, pro-American, Jewish, uh, but at the very top of it, the prime minister. And I think we're looking as someone who's hit the ground running on day one, a, a very impressive start because mm. he said, I don't need a break. He's told <laughs> his parliament and his party, forget about August recess. <laughs> he gave a detailed plan to every ministry, a six-month plan. He said, I don't want a break. I don't want 100 days. I want results immediately, which is very critical because we are looking at a time in the region that it's even more unstable. You know, the, the S-400 uh, purchased by Turkey. Turkey deciding we're not going to let Israel and Greece and Cyprus and Egypt go along and set the rules on uh, on energy. So I, I think uh, having him ready to go, he means it. I, I expect very good things, especially because being pro-Israel right now and pro-U.S. is a matter of bipartisan consensus. The Syriza government, which Syriza means actually literally the party of the radical left, and they were <laughs> anything but in terms of that geopolitical orientation. They yeah. were very good friends of, of Israel, very good friends of the EU, very good friends of the U.S. Uh, I think we have a moment in time which is unique in Greece. That you have the, the two major parties. And everybody else is kind of a minor. But if you look at the breakdown of the parliament, when you look at the top three parties, they control well over 80 percent of the seats. And they are all on this consensus in terms of, of geopolitics. There may be on a specific issue uh, changes, but we are not going to go back anytime soon to the days in Greece that you thought one party is in and they're pro-Western and other parties in, they may be, you know, anti-Zionist or anti-NATO or something. That's not, we, we are in a very good spot where we can use these years to launch an even better relationship. And in the last election, we actually saw Golden Dawn, the neo-Nazi party voted out of out, the parliament. Out, completely out. Uh, completely out. Not only are they out of the parliament, uh, but they also uh, have no longer having that political base, having other existential problems. They were they couldn't afford their office space, were evicted from there. Uh, <laughs> the criminal case against some of their leaders continues for inciting violence that led to the murder, whether you call him a singer or a rapper. But... Uh, <laughs> You know, that has shown to be a pretty false ideology. Greece, I mean, it was born of economic problems in Greece, right? Austerity was born of dual crises, but the Greek people have always stood up against Nazism. They did it again. They're gone. You know, it's interesting to think about 
perhaps born out of the stress of economic challenges that Greece was facing, um, Greece in many ways got to where Europe was heading first, right? It, it was, you know, one of the first countries that we saw elect any kind of, you know, neo-Nazis into its parliament. It was one of the first countries that turned to a real radical, in this case, Syriza, the, the radical left, to lead the country. And it also seems like, it's too early to draw these conclusions, but perhaps Greece is one of the first countries to emerge from that kind of fevered politics. And, and maybe one of the lessons to draw, we can look back on this in a year and say, well, that was ludicrous, or say, maybe I was onto something. Maybe it's one of the first countries to emerge from that um, kind of fevered state of crazed, radical politics. Maybe uh, Greece is a harbinger now for things coming a little bit back to normal in European politics. I hope so, though. I think Greece is a good news story. I only challenge your premise in the way you, you let into it makes sense by what you read in the English language press mm. about Greece. But I always like to remind people that Golden Dawn did get elected. They weren't the first Nazi party. All of Western Europe had Nazi parties in parliament smaller for much longer than Greece did. Mm. Uh, but... And unfortunately, we're witnessing this in the U.S. Golden Dawn kind of topped out at about 7 8%. Uh, unfortunately, we live now in a country that I would not be shocked if an openly Nazi party got more than that in the United States, right? Here we are, you know, in the last election in Chicago in a fairly ethnic neighborhood, the Republican candidate uh, who wasn't a Republican. The Republican Party ran away from this guy. Mm -hmm. He was an open Nazi, the guy who yeah. ran against Dan Lipinski, and he got 24% of the vote, right? But even during the depths of the crisis, the worst time of the crisis, when the Greek population thought that its partners in Europe had abandoned it, and on top of that, you had the refugee and migrant crisis hitting Greece hard. Even at that worst point in the crisis, I'd like to point out that no one ever, ever entertained, and six parties had government experience at that time, had passed through government at that time. Nobody ever even entered into discussions with Golden Dawn to participate in government. Mm -hmm. Nobody tried to recruit a Golden Dawn member to leave their party and come into a mainstream party. The president of the republic never handed Golden Dawn a mandate to try to form a government. And in fact, two straight governments, both the Samaras government and the Tsipras government, carried out uh, prosecutions uh, against Golden Dawn members for inciting and perpetrating violence. So that doesn't make it any less distressing for me that they actually had a legit voice at one point, but they were a isolated or shunned minority political voice. Which we haven't seen in every country in Europe. Uh, exactly. Uh, Syriza was, you know, in opposition, pretty radical, and then went to the center left very quickly. Mm -hmm. Now, you can argue about why was it forced to, but it did. And it governed like a center left party, far more center left than even the former center left in, in Greece. Uh, but the good news story is, and if Greece can be, and this is this is kind of like going back to series, uh, early on some series officials said, well, we're not going to let Europe change Greece. We're going to have Greece change Europe. Well, maybe now we can do that because the center held in Greece. That's amazing. Yeah. The center has held in Greece. Uh, and that's why I think it's even more imperative uh, that the U.S. and Brussels 
and friends of Greece, like the AJC, do whatever they can to have this success story play out in Greece. Because if the center can hold, no country in the world got that same economic and migrant crisis and political crisis at the same time, right? No country of the European Union had a, I mean, Greece lost 25% of its GDP. And if you look at the same time, the only other countries that lost similar percentages of, of GDP were Yemen, Ukraine, Venezuela. Not the best company. These were countries that were at war or in effect in some type of sense of war. Nobody has had such a peacetime drop in GDP since the Great Depression. And for Greece to come out holding the center from that and being a leader in the region, and in fact, making progress in certain things, fighting anti-Semitism actively, you, you have the effort to restore a lot of the Jewish history of Salonika. You have International Holocaust Remembrance Day and Holocaust Remembrance, which is, an, by the way, International Holocaust Remembrance Day is a national holiday in Greece, hmm. something most people don't know. Um, you don't have the Jewish community there feeling uh, physically threatened. Hmm. And that's just, you, you have the first mosque opening in Athens, you have probably the pride and joy of Greece, the most recognized Greek worldwide being African, Yanis Adetokounmpo, the, the, <laughs> the Greek freak. So there, there's, you know, to make that play out, to make that success permanent is important for all of us and for the values we stand for. Um, I think that's far more astutely put than the point I was trying to make. Yeah. This concept that the center has held, which I think is something um, that we're all looking with some trepidation toward other places in Europe, toward the UK, toward France, toward Germany, and, and hoping, indeed, that the center will will hold there as well. And I'd like to point out, because, you know, obviously the Mitsotakis government, the Mitsotakis family gets a lot of credit for it, but we have to remember the progress that was made during the Tsipras government, because yeah. a lot of people came in and oh, yeah. said, oh, they're, you know, anti-Zionist or pro-Palestinian. And I think a lot of the center holding the geopolitical relationships and even the real fight against anti-Semitism was ratcheted up during those years. And so when we're talking about the center, we're not only talking about this government, the Mitsotakis government, which is a tremendous victory for the center-right, but the fact that the Tsipras government and uh, the former prime minister himself has not only seemed to have consolidated the the center-left, but has declared that as a goal, I'm going to consolidate the center-left along these lines, is, is huge. Yeah. Andy, before I let you go, what more do you want our listeners to know about the Hellenic American community? Uh, I think I'd like to go back to how close we have been for centuries. And I referenced before that we stand on the shoulder of giants, but these are not giants only who live during our lifetime, right? Athens and Jerusalem, Greeks and Jews. Jerusalem's a holy city for Greeks, right? The Patriarchate in Jerusalem is one of the most visited places for Greek Orthodox Christians in the United States. Almost every parish does some mission to Jerusalem for that. Uh, And in Greece, there were historic Jewish communities that predated Christ, right? There was Judaism in Greece before there was Christianity. So those ties are very important for us to remember. And 
what similarities we have, and I'll go back to this Winston Churchill quote that I mm. uh, that I referenced before. But Churchill said, "No two races have set such a mark upon the world. Both have shown a capacity for survival, in spite of unending perils and sufferings from external oppressors, matched only by their own ceaseless feuds, quarrels, and convulsions." <laughs> The passage of several thousand years sees no change in their characteristics and no diminution of their original vitality. They have survived in spite of all the world could do against them and all they could do against themselves. And each of them from angles so different have left us the inheritance of their genius and wisdom. Wow. Uh, The unending perils continue. And we can reaffirm our vitality, our values, and our survival instincts all that much better by working together. Well, here's to facing down those unending perils together, Andy. Thank you so much for joining us on AJC Passport. Thank you. Julie Fishman Raymond is AJC Director of Political Outreach. She joins us now to recap this week's debates in the race for the 2020 Democratic presidential nomination. Julie, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, all of America, it seems, is paying close attention, perhaps even too close attention, to the fight over the Democratic nomination in 2020. It's the latest sporting event that our compatriots here in America have become obsessed with. Uh, What are the primary issues that AJC is paying attention to in this race? So first, I want to challenge you a little bit that everyone's paying attention, because I think that those of us who are paying attention are really paying attention. But the actual ratings for this last debate were pretty abysmal. I think they were down 40 percent from the debates in June. And on Tuesday, The Bachelorette was trending higher than the debate. (laughs) Well, that is perfectly understandable. Yes, exactly. Even in D.C., where we assume everyone's in the bubble and everyone's watching these issues all the time, the local news station that I watch in the mornings, the day after, went around to interview people on the street, you know, to get their reactions and hear what they had to say. And even those people hadn't watched it. They could not find people who watched the debate (laughs) to be interviewed about their impressions. That's a good point that for those of us who are in it, we're super in it. But for much of America, you know, when are the Iowa caucuses? February, January? You know, this is uh, the, a, the, the game doesn't start in earnest life. for a long time. Exactly. Exactly. So people are waiting. You know, they realize there's a huge field and people dropping out and popping in all the time. And I think they're they're saying, you know what, I'll wait. Um, and honestly, I think in some ways it's for the better, because what's happening on this debate stage now is a little bit ugly and I think not good for for America in general, right? To see our, our politicians, even of the same party, fighting it out, belittling each other. Um, it's, it's, of course, what debates are, are want to do. It's what naturally happens. Um, but at this point, when we have so many candidates, you have to have the debates over two nights. Uh, there's there's probably even more of that sort of partisan infighting than than is necessary or or helpful. Um, but in terms of the AJC issues that we're watching, it, 
it won't surprise you at all. Of course, we're wanting to hear more about what the the candidates think about the the state of the U.S. Israel relationship, um, and frankly, what's the state of the the Democratic Party's relationship to Israel at this point in time. We want to hear more about the views about rejoining the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Uh, the Democratic National Convention had done a, a resolution uh, where they supported the uh, unrenegotiated re-entrance to the JCPOA. Uh, and it was it was sort of non-controversial, and it was only a blip, a blip, a blip on the on the media cycle. Um, but what we saw in these last few debates is, even though Iran didn't get a huge mention, uh, we saw a little bit of a difference of opinion. And uh, Andrew Yang, for example, said we need to renegotiate the JCPOA based on new timelines because the timelines from the existing JCPOA that we've withdrawn from. Um, as a country, don't make sense anymore. Um, so certainly Israel, certainly Iran, definitely the state of anti-Semitism and hate in America, uh, the issues that have been and will continue to be at the top of AJC's priority agenda. So to boil that down, you've basically highlighted three things as the the main issues, I, I think. You spoke about Israel, the U.S. Israel relationship, and the Democratic Party's stance toward Israel. You spoke about the continuing nuclear threat from Iran and how these candidates would deal with that should they end up in the Oval Office. And you spoke about the state of anti-Semitism and hate in this country and, I would add, uh, around the world. Is that basically right? Absolutely. So. Um, Let's go point by point. Where are we? Where Where is AJC vis-a-vis, you know, the Democratic Party's relationship with Israel? There's been a lot of overheated rhetoric lately when it comes to concerns around the future of Israel and the Democratic Party. Are we concerned looking at the stage over the past uh, two nights? I don't think that we can relegate uh, this kind of conversation to just what we've seen from the debates, because there simply hasn't been enough as it relates to Israel. Um, We actually know much more about the candidate's stance towards Israel from, for example, the, the videos that many of them provided for AJC for our global forum, um, where they talked in greater depth about Israel than the debates have allowed them to do thus far. Um, or from other things that have been written. Uh, I, I think that there's, I don't want to say it's a concern only about the Democratic Party as it relates to Israel. I think it's a concern about bipartisan support for Israel in the United States, right? There's finger pointing to go around. Um, there's blame to be put on either side. I think there's a real concern about the polls that are coming out, if we're looking just at the Democratic Party, of where are the grassroots Democrats when it comes to Israel. Uh, the the candidates generally, um, and I would say all elected officials generally, uh, find that support for Israel is what's in the best interest of the United States and espouse that view freely. Uh, the the polls of Democrats, especially young Democrats, I would say, um, are, are not as effusive in that support. Um, it's, a, it's a little more uh, nuanced or tinged in a way that I think is concerning, you know, that there's fear amongst especially young Democrats that a perceived right-wing government in Israel um, means that Israel in and of itself is a a right-wing cause. And that's something that we can't, 
we think organizationally allow to be the perception. Um, because if Israel is perceived as only a right-wing cause or frankly only a left-wing cause, uh, then we're sunk because the American political pendulum swings, all political pendulums swing, and the right and ability for Israel to exist with strong international support, as strong as it's been, um, or as weak as it has been, I should say, um, has really depended on American political support from both sides. What about on Iran? You cited a little bit of nuance that Andrew Yang offered in terms of, you know, uh, not rushing to get back into the JCPOA, the Iran deal, precisely as it was written a few years ago, but renegotiating some parts of it. I think Cory Booker um, has also gone on the record saying that, you know, we shouldn't just rejoin the deal. We should look to get as good of a deal as we possibly can, which ideally would be a far stronger deal than the original JCPOA. Would you say that there's a push among the Democratic contenders to just jump right back into the deal as negotiated by Obama and John Kerry and Wendy Sherman? I think it's going to be a struggle for a number of those candidates, you know, like especially Cory Booker, Amy Klobuchar, people who really wrestled with this when Congress had to debate the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. And I don't want to say that it's um, a, a massive concern, but I think they're going to wrestle, and I think there there's a lot of politics involved. Uh, one of the most interesting things that I think we saw from the debate on Wednesday night especially because that was the debate in which Joe Biden participated, was a a willingness amongst the candidates to go after Obama policies. And that may, in fact, offer some sort of opening. Um, It's certainly risky for them, but I think it it will provide some sort of opening. Um, I think that there's definitely also this recognition amongst the candidates now that we're in a really different place than we were both when the uh, the JCPOA was negotiated and when the U.S. president currently in office withdrew the United States from the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action as well. Um, you heard a couple of candidates throughout the, the last two days of debates referencing the, the march towards war with Iran. Um, and I think that there's a feeling amongst some in the Democratic Party and certainly some on the, the stage that we are, in fact, marching towards war, that there's some sort of inevitable military conflict. And if that's truly their concern, then I think the ability or the willingness to renegotiate will be higher. And what about on anti-Semitism and hate? Which candidates have been outspoken so far on combating anti-Semitism and looking toward kind of hate more generally? Is it safe to assume that a Democratic administration is simply going to be better on that issue than the current one? Such an interesting question because some of the sort of the the globalists or, or internationally focused uh, experts and pundits have said, oh, you know, we are not really hearing anything from the candidates on this. But what we're actually hearing, I think, is sort of loud and clear because they're talking about national security. And they're talking about terrorism, but they're talking about domestic terrorism. Um, Elizabeth Warren on Tuesday night made a really pronounced statement about this, about the need to call hate crimes and white nationalism and white supremacy incidents that evolve from those domestic terror. All 13 videos that AJC received from 2020 candidates for our global forum 
referenced hate crimes or the rise of the extreme right or white nationalism in some way, um, often connecting it to anti-Semitism because, you know, hate is hate at the end of the day. Um, But I think that's a really interesting kind of lens through which we view this. It's not a parochial issue. It's a, it's a universal issue. And in that way, I think we're hearing loud and clear from the candidates that they're, they're not willing to engage or tolerate um, racism, anti-Semitism, et cetera. Uh, we should hear more from all of them, I think, nationally. You know, AJC has heard from them, but I think at some point, the, the Jewish community should be vocal in saying we, we want to hear more specifically about this issue. Um, We don't want anti-Semitism simply to be lumped in with other types of hate, um, but it is an exceptional and uh, distinct type of hate with a lot of manifestations and and facets. And we need to to see exactly what the candidates and would propose from a policy angle specifically with regards to anti-Semitism. One interesting phenomenon that we've seen taking place over the last month or so is a group of young radical left Jewish activists affiliated with the group, if not now, um, who've been engaging in a tactic called bird dogging, um, where they kind of tail and trail Democratic candidates in order to ask them a question on camera, maybe while they're, you know, posing for a selfie with them or, or something like that, um, asking them, you know, what they'll do to end Israel's occupation of the Palestinian territories. What are we to make of this phenomenon? You know, AJC is on the record as being, you know, no great fan of Israel's settlement enterprise. Um, on the other hand, we're realistic. We know that the occupation can't simply end tomorrow and that what's needed is constructive American engagement to try to bring the conflict uh, to an end. And, and that includes pressure on the Palestinians at least as much as it does pressure on, on Israelis. But that's not on the agenda for these folks. So, you know, what do we think of this tactic? And more to the point, how do we feel the Democratic candidates have stood up under this kind of, uh, of pressure? Well, I would say in terms of the tactic, bird dogging is probably not a great or effective way of of getting a point across. Um, Putting (laughs) someone on the defensive is not generally a really good way of starting a conversation, Um, certainly about uh, an issue that's as complex and sensitive as Israel and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the occupation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, In terms of having those conversations, if you look at the the candidate's statements about Israel, if you look at their records for those who have political records, there is an actual surprising degree of difference and of specificity. The Council on Foreign Relations on, I believe it was Tuesday, put out a candidate responses to various questions related to foreign policy. And one of those questions was, do you support a two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? And while they unanimously, those that were asked by CFR, uh, said that they do in fact support a two-state solution, they go into a lot of really interesting detail um, about, you know, what is the relationship between the Israelis and the Palestinians? Um, What is the U.S. role? Are we allowed to be in? a broker? Are we currently perceived as an honest broker? Uh, There are a lot of really touchy details. 
um, that can't be parsed out by a, you know, a bird dogging kind of question asked while somebody's trying to take a selfie. Um, and I think that it, it behooves the Jewish community writ large, um, whatever side of the spectrum you're on, to, to not allow this issue to be uh, minimized to the point of a conversation around a selfie. Right. We need to have a bigger, longer, more intense conversation about these issues. And and I don't think if not now is allowing for those conversations to happen or enabling the Jewish community to have them um, by doing this sort of bird dog tactic. One thing that many people have noted over the first couple rounds of debates um, is that there really hasn't been uh, much of a focus on on foreign policy in the vein of those Council on Foreign Relations questions that you cited. Um, what are the questions that we would like to hear posed, um, the foreign policy questions that we would like to hear posed in the next debate in uh, in September? Oh, this is a great question. Uh, I think that this will happen. I don't, I don't want to make it sound like I'm pinning this on certainly not the candidates, but not even the media, because the debates largely are a response to what the nation wants to hear, but even more specifically, where the debates are located and what that particular constituency wants to hear, right? So we started in Miami, and it was a, a Telemundo broadcast as well. So of course, there was going to be a lot of conversation about immigration, migration, et cetera. Um, and then this most recent round was in Michigan. So of course, we're going to be talking about how care, manufacturing, the workforce, um, issues around race. So I think that we will get there. I don't think it's even, um, as some would say, a sign that the foreign policy issues aren't first and foremost um, of importance or on the minds of these candidates. We'll eventually get there. Um, although I will say that it's it's interesting that multiple candidates they sort of use the phrase, our house is on fire, um, dig on, on the current administration, but also sort of saying there's so many pressing issues within our borders on the domestic front that, you know, these these have to kind of come first. Um, but in terms of the questions that AJC would ask, I think we have to first and foremost start with questions about the U.S.'s role in the world, period. Uh, a question about, you know, what does principled American global leadership mean? What's the U.S. role when it comes to the U.N., the European Union, NATO, um, international treaties and obligations, uh, the protection and promotion of human rights, um, sort of that big picture question of what is America's role before we can even get down into into the other issues, right? Because if we're going to talk about what's America's role with regards to Israel or what's America's role with regards to um, combating anti-Semitism worldwide um, or even the most clear example, what can be America's role in negotiations with Iran post-withdrawal from the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, it has to start with, you know, where is America now? Are we leading? Are we taking a backseat? What should our leadership look like? What's the role of our allies? What's the role of the multilateral institutions? Well, Julie will certainly be watching this as the uh, months tick by and we get closer and closer to actual votes being cast and caucuses being held in the Democratic uh, primary. Thank you so much for walking us through the state of play today. Thank you, Safi. It's my pleasure. Now it's time for our closing segment. 
Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Summer in Israel. Good for the Jews? Sure, it's hot, but as the mercury ticks up, so does the star power. Israel plays host to millions of tourists every year. In May, the country was mobbed by fans of the Eurovision Song Contest. June brought tourists eager to check out Israel's gay scene and celebrate pride in Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, and elsewhere, including Neil Patrick Harris. But now July has topped the past two months. First, John Bon Jovi came to Israel and performed for tens of thousands at Hayarkon Park in Tel Aviv, including New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy. Murphy, a longtime friend of Israel, who was elected New Jersey's governor in 2017 after serving as President Obama's ambassador to Germany, was in Israel as part of a family vacation. And there's another family spending time in Israel. Jennifer Lopez, her fiancé Alex Rodriguez, and their kids— JLo, one of the most famous pop stars in the world, will be performing in Israel as part of her first international tour in seven years. A-Rod, the 14-time All-Star, three-time MVP, and 2009 World Series champion who played for the best team in baseball, the New York Yankees, from 2004 through 2016. A-Rod has been showering Israel with praise on social media, extolling the country for its energy and saying that he is, quote, in love. Of course he is. He's enjoying summer in Israel. And that's good for the Jews. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Kukang Doe. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.